Hi everyone and welcome to episode 15 of Her Story. This is Cassidy Reed and this week I am talking to Anne Majette. Anne is a former classical music critic for the Washington Post and she was also the first female classical music critic for the New York Times. In this episode, Anne and I talk about her career, we talk about the Me Too movement, and we talk about the stance of modern classical music in our culture today. So I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode. Enjoy! former classical music critic of the Washington Post, now a freelance writer. Awesome. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show, Anne, because a lot of the guests that I've had are, you know, pretty involved in classical music and other sorts of careers in the music industry. And I think it's really wonderful to have a journalist on. This is great. (laughs) The other side of the coin, as it were. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I'm trying to get people from all different sorts of career paths that have been involved in music in some way, especially people that are underrepresented in our career. So whether it be women or people of color and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited to have you here. Well, I can, I can say that I'm, I'm relevant to this in that I was the first woman to review classical music for the New York Times. And at the time that I became that in 2001, it seemed kind of ridiculous to me because you know, equality seemed like a matter of course, but it was a big deal in the music world. And it was one more marker for me of how male dominated this world traditionally had been. Although I didn't personally encounter many obstacles at all in terms of career advancement because they wanted more women. I did encounter a lot of pushback among readers and even musicians in funny ways by being a woman in this role. And uh, it was very eye-opening to me. And, you know, female conductors, too, can sing the same song, I think. But it was amusing that it extended to journalism. Yeah, so what got you involved in sort of the music, the classical music side of journalism? That's funny. I mean, I never wanted to be a journalist at all. I wanted to be a novelist. And I loved opera passionately and moved to Europe after college so I could be near opera moving to Germany, I didn't realize, put me right in the center of the opera world in a way that even Italy wouldn't have because there's just so much opera in Germany. My novel didn't work out and I had a few of the kinds of crises that one has in one's 20s and ended up in journalism sort of by default as a thing I thought I would do to pass the time while I picked up the ashes of my life at that particular moment. So journalism, of course, happened to work really, really well as fate will have it. The thing that you are sort of not looking forward to is the thing that works out. I ended up writing about the arts all over Europe and met a bunch of journalists who were really wonderful mentors. And I have to say, particularly since my later work became so involved with Me Too, I remain eternally grateful for the wonderful male mentors who could have been horrible Me Too offenders and never were. There were like three or four people who really were fabulous to me and opened doors and never, ever crossed a line. It's probably a big reason I stayed in journalism. Yeah, that's amazing. So what was your experiences like writing about the arts in Germany versus the U.S.? Well, you know, I'd never written, I'd never even thought about being a journalist in the U.S. And I moved to Germany right after my 21st birthday. So I basically had been in college, you know, and then got to Germany and then all my friends were artists. And I began writing and it was really like this big glorious game that I was winning at. It was just before the rise of the internet. We're talking like early 90s. It was all through the 90s that I was there. And so it was a big advantage to be on site and able to report about things. People were still a little bit slower to fly people in to cover things. And so I got a foot in the door at a lot of places. I mean, I started writing for the Wall Street Journal and they were willing to send me basically all over Europe because it was much cheaper to put me on a train and send me to then Yugoslavia to cover a music festival than it would <laughs> to send somebody from New York. You know? Yeah. Um, so I really just started looking for things I wanted to write about and bopping around Europe. It was kind of crazy. It was really 
one of the happiest times I've ever had as a journalist. And I kept thinking, this can't be real life, you know? And, uh, but I, I didn't have much standard of comparison. I was mainly writing for American publications about things in Europe. Opera News and the Wall Street Journal were my main outlets. I was doing a lot of travel guidebook writing, a lot of translating, you know, freelance for the BBC. I mean, you pick up all kinds of stuff, which was all really fun and adventurous. And each job was kind of a new gig. Um, it's a very promiscuous way to make your living. As, as any freelancer knows, you know, it's no different from being a freelance musician in that regard. You say yes, and you get into all kinds of different things. And coming back to America was a much more, you know, grown up step. I mean, I really thought, well, I'm going to have to come back and get a real job. And um, mm -hmm. then I came back and ended up freelancing here for the next eight years or so. Um, even when I got to the New York Times, I was still a freelancer and I still had to do a lot of things to make ends meet. So all the Times gave me so much work that I ended up almost supporting myself entirely by the New York Times, which is, by the way, a lot of bylines because the freelance rate isn't that great. Yeah, and you, you had mentioned that you were the first woman to review classical music regularly at the New York Times. So how was that experience for you being the first woman and walking into a job like that? Well, it was really funny because it was a freelance job, but at the Times, and I'm, it may still be like that, they had to kind of invite you to become a freelancer. And then being a freelancer was kind of a full-time thing. They expected me to be available, you know, multiple times a week to go out and cover stuff. So it was this funny sort of, you're not quite totally free, but you're not certainly on staff. And at the time, the Times was so sensitive about never having had a woman that they only considered women for the vacant freelance post. And so I was an affirmative action baby, which is amusing, but which also was one of many things that opened my eyes to what needs to be done to make up for gender and now racial disparities in this field, in all fields, I say this field, classical music, journalism, we have a lot of territory to make up. You have to be very deliberate about going out and hiring women and hiring black people and hiring people of color and just being focused about it because your default is gonna to be to people who are like you and therefore that is why white men have been dominant for so long. We kind of know this and yet to sort of assume that, oh, the cream will naturally rise to the top and, you know, we shouldn't make decisions based on gender or race. That's naive. It doesn't work like that. The systemic racism is so entrenched that it's not going to naturally correct itself unless we break it down and make an effort to correct it. And um, so my experience in 2001 was one piece of that realization for me, because I think a lot of what I was then able subsequently to do in my career happened because I was a woman. I mean, as a woman, I did have a different perspective and I did bring different things to the job. You know, I'm not saying a man would have been better or worse, but nobody can deny that my being a woman was reflected very much in the scope of my journalistic career. Yeah, and that was my next question was about, based upon you being the first female in that position, did you feel like you had to write about certain topics or did you feel like other people assumed that you should be writing about certain subjects? I definitely got, I got pushback from even a couple of old friends who felt I was being insufficiently feminist according to their measure of feminism. And I, I actually wrote an article, which is now online, I can send you the link. I wrote it back in 2002 about what it was like being a woman and what the expectations were of a woman. But I remember a publicist and friend coming up to my husband and saying, this is so great. Now we have someone to pitch the human interest stories to. Mm. <laughs> and I was really flabbergasted. I think for myself, I probably laid on myself too heavily. This is, we're talking 2001. And I also never felt I really had the background to be a critic. I mean, I was very, I had galloping imposter syndrome for years, which incidentally, I think any good classical music reviewer should have because there is so much more to review as a quote, classical music reviewer than you could possibly be an expert in. I'm sorry, you may know something about opera, something about orchestras, contemporary music, organ concertos, bassoon pieces, like there's a much bigger repertoire out there than you can be convincingly expert in. So yeah. all of us are, are, you know, imposters in that sense. But um, I, I struggled with that, certainly. And I've lost my train of thought because imposter syndrome will do that. It will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that imposter syndrome is just so relatable. And I feel like a lot of women in any field feel that way, especially if they're walking into something that is more male dominated. They question 
why they are there and are in the position that they are and whether they consciously realize it or not there is that sense of questioning for sure absolutely now that said i know male colleagues who have suffered from it too and as i said going into these big critic jobs where so much is weighing on you it's sort of a natural reaction in a way because we're trained to see critics these sort of you know all-knowing authorities and you think oh my gosh can i be that but i found my train of thought again which was about writing on feminist topics. I think mm-hmm. for the first years at the time, certainly, I wanted to prove I could play catch up with the men. And I think there was a lot, probably unnecessarily in my career, of wanting to be able to prove myself. Going back even to when I was in college and thinking of being a novelist and thinking, am I going to write women's fiction or am I going to write fiction? And if I write fiction about a woman, how can I get out of that little you know, fiefdom. And it's, it's probably a less relatable thing now than it was in the 1980s. But I do savor having reached a point in my career where I no longer really give a crap about whether I'm writing women's fiction or not. And I have, mm-hmm. I feel that I have proved myself sufficiently in whatever arenas I felt I needed to prove myself that I could go off and be a galloping feminist and write anything I want. And you know, people will listen or not, but I don't have this sort of anxiety about what category I'm going to be put in any longer. Yeah, that's great that you're able to develop yourself like that and get that confidence throughout your career. Well, of course, I hope that women today are starting with some of the confidence that it took me longer to build. You know, it's never a straight line, these kinds of developments. And I know the concept of feminism has taken a beating in the in recent years, but I hope we're back at a place. Certainly I see in the classic music field, the growing awareness of I mean, podcasts like yours, you know, a, a sense of, of possibility and possibly less struggle than there used to be. I mean, my generation still, that too was an area where even in the eighties, there still had to be some struggles about, you know, having a family and whether you could really do it and have a kid at the same time and yeah. kinds of very, you know, matter-of-fact issues that weren't so matter-of-fact 30 years ago. Yeah, and you talked about being a music critic, that you're, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, the end-all, be-all, you are the opinion, and the issues that surround now with the fact that, you know, music is so subjective and everything like that. Did you ever feel like because you are a woman in that position and you are a music critic, did you ever feel that pushback because you were a woman in that position? In hindsight, I think definitely. I wrote about this a little bit in that piece I mentioned before from 2002 about being a female critic where I said I really can't say how far my being a woman affects the way I write criticism. But I was aware then and perhaps even more aware now that in those first couple of years at the Times, that first year at the Times, I got tremendous pushback from the world, from readers. People really didn't like me. And there were friends of ours who, once I began writing for the Times, I could feel this kind of pall. And of course, you're hypersensitive because you feel so vulnerable. I felt like Hester Prynne that I was walking into rooms with, you know, the New York Times critic tattooed on my forehead. But I look back and I think a lot of it, I mean, I just presented very differently from the way critics had and just by virtue of being me, and I couldn't put my finger on what was so different about it, but I have looked back, there are a couple of reviews that I was talked to about well-meaningly by older colleagues trying to give me advice. And there was one I remember he said, you know, you're just, this show, you just weren't quite ready for this kind of assignment, but you'll get there, don't worry. And I go back and read that review, and I honestly cannot tell you why that review showed that I wasn't ready for the big time. It's yeah. a perfectly fine review. It really is. And I think everybody was just so nervous. Now, that said, I was nervous. So people who were around me were also reading my nerves and kind of made them nervous too. But it is amusing that I was getting sort of talked to about reviews that, I'm sorry, were perfectly good reviews. Yeah, definitely. And one of the reasons why I asked you to come on the show and talk was because I read a a few of your articles for the Washington Post and some of them had to do with the Me Too movement and everything. And a lot of the comments that were on the article underneath, but it sparked a lot of controversy with how much you were writing about the Me Too movement in relation to classical music. And me, you know, being a young female student, everything and reading those things, it made me very angry that you were getting this 
pushback about writing about this movement in the classical music realm. That's interesting because whatever level of pushback I got at that was really mild. I guess at that point in my career, I was at a whole different place. Um, mm. I mean, we expected there to be some controversy. I think by the time that, when that article was a particular watershed in my career anyway, it was really a, a culmination, I guess. Not at all what I expected to be writing about. We knew there was going to be some pushback, and, and I was surprised at what a positive reaction there was to that article and how much happened as a result of that article because the nature of those articles, if you do them for a major paper, is that so much gets left in the cutting room floor. There's so much you can't say. It has to be lawyered up. It has to go through all these levels of editing. And you know, you understand it's a, it's a liability issue at that point. And when you're a critic who's been used to sort of shooting off your mouth about what you think for the past 20 years, and all of a sudden you have to sort of be able to validate every statement you make to a lawyer, it's a very different kind of writing. But again, the level of whatever pushback I got for that really didn't feel like much. I developed a much thicker skin after my first couple of years at the New York Times. And also I think at the Washington Post, you know, I, as a critic, you're always going to have people who don't like you, you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I felt like I was sort of part of the landscape in a way by then. So that article was generally, for me, a very, a very positive thing. It certainly changed my standing in the field. I mean, it's funny, the perception even of that article. It was one article, and then we did a few follow-ups, um, but we didn't, we didn't do even as many follow-ups as I would have liked because the paper was so filled with Me Too articles at that point that there was a lot of jostling about what got to get in. It was tricky, a tricky time for editors and lawyers and you know, because obviously there were so many stories in every field about Me Too. But, uh, and it, it wasn't a story that I had sought to take on. I always tell I was approached by somebody um, who called me up and said, I'm going to meet you at intermission of this opera. And he said, you need to write this story. And I said, I'm a music critic and critics don't really write this kind of investigative piece, but I could hook you up with somebody who could write it. He said, no, no, people will talk to you. They trust you. And I'm like, trust me, I'm this hated critic. What do you mean? And, <laughs> and he helped get the word out. And I went out on social media, call Anne Majet with your stories and here's her number. And I always, I'm sort of fascinated with social media. I mean, I'm a big social media person and I don't like to interfere with watching what it does. So I didn't step in with those social media posts and either confirm or deny. I just let them go. And so people began calling me or writing me saying, is it true when you hear my story? And I'm like, well, I'll hear your story. You know, I don't know what I can do with it, but I'll listen. And mm-hmm. it was an outpouring. I was unprepared for the level of, I mean, I talked to, I think it was 50, 55 victims, direct victims, and another 20 people whose best friend, spouse, partner, you know, whatever, had been a victim. And, you know, all the other people you talked to to confirm and back it up. It was this enormous piece. And I enlisted the help of, an, of the arts reporter very quickly, Peggy McGlone, who was my co-author on it, because it was not a kind of piece I had ever done for all of the many, many feature pieces I had done. And so that's how that happened. It wasn't like I got on my crusading horse and said, I'm going to do this. It was a very <laughs> organic piece that was almost crowdsourced in a way, although it took, you know, it was, I think it was, I started in November and it was published in July. So it was all that backbreaking amount of work and it was a really huge amount of work. Yeah, changed my relationship to the field in a way and certainly changed my perception in the field. I think I switched from being a bad guy to being a good guy for for some people anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I think that music journalism has such a profound way that when people write about these issues, it puts it into the public eye, especially with people that aren't directly involved in classical music. They're just an audience member or something like that. And I feel like a lot of organizations during this time tried to sweep a lot of these cases under the rug. Yeah. And they didn't want them put out publicly. And that's why I think your writing about this subject was so profound because it put that in the public eye and the public lens and said, hey, you know what? No, this is not okay. And this is these women's stories. And I thought that was so amazing because now, you know, that's what was eliciting change. All of a sudden, orchestras or collegiate institutions were going, oh, crap, it's public now. We have to do something about it. And I think it was just calling them out and saying, hey, this is actually happening and you can't hide this. Yeah, which is, which is absolutely true, and which also, I have to say, kind of sickened me. The realization that 
it was like this big game of tag, you know, the, all the positive things I talked about in Europe, journalism was like this big game. It became this huge negative then that it was all going on, but not until the journalist says, tag, you're it, I got you. Is it something that you have to act on? Like, how can you know that these offenses and horrible things are going on and think it's okay to sweep them under the rug and, you know, until it gets into print. And I literally got a couple of phone calls from people who were saying like, we want to give this artist a big award, but we've heard your article is in the works. Um, is this artist mentioned in your article and can we still give him a big award? <laughs> and you're just like, if you think there's a reason you shouldn't give that artist a big award, if you think he's not behaved well, then I'm really not gonna act as your conscience. You know? <laughs> and I have to say, and I've said this before, and I think this should also be public, that you know, through telling that, through, through reporting this out, I learned so many stories that I couldn't tell. And so many stories on you know, a lower level that aren't getting interest in major national paper, but that are doing untold damage. And so many stories at a big level that we just, we can't, nail down every story, you know, there's a very stringent list of requirements and there's always so much space you have in the paper. And coexisting in a field where I knew that there were all of these, you know, horrible people running around unchecked because I hadn't named them. Some of them knowing that I knew it was this horrible cat and mouse game. It made me very, very uncomfortable. I mean, it was one contribution to my decision to leave the field because how do you go on reviewing people you know did something, but if you don't review them, isn't that um, basically a statement of saying, I know you did something, <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. you avoid it for so long. And it takes you into very tricky territory. And especially in some of these cases where it's so widely known that after our story came out, I would get letters from readers saying, well, I've heard about so-and-so. <laughs> it's like, yes, I heard about so-and-so too, but we couldn't get so-and-so in print. <laughs> And uh, so these, it's not like these are deep, dark secrets in many cases. You know, I hope they keep being unearthed. I think the COVID crisis, I know there were a couple more stories in the works by, you know, colleagues of mine who are still active, but the COVID shutdown has, you know, intervened in that. And I'm not sure it's, uh, I'm not sure what the future of that all is going to be. I mean, it is my devout hope that a silver lining of the COVID shutdown, as horribly painful as it is, is going to be that, a lot of these institutions are going to have to remake themselves and refashion themselves and that that refashioning will bring with it an elimination of some of the systems that have grown up in which these offenses are embedded, you know, that, that this Me Too stuff is kind of baked into the way things have been and this is maybe a chance to make a new way for things to be that doesn't include that. We can only hope. Yeah, and you were talking about high profile issues and people like that. And then there was always those people that, you know, were more low profile and you felt like you couldn't really, you know, come out and say, yep, that person did that. Cause I heard what had actually happened with victims. And for me, I'm currently getting my master's degree at the Eastman School of Music and I got my undergrad in the Cleveland area. And so I was in school in my undergrad when all the issues of the Cleveland Orchestra were happening. Sure. With Bill Prusel and Massimo La Rosa. So yes. I was around that whole arena with all this controversy and happening and CIM sweeping things under the rug. And there were so many reports of women being victimized. And the terrifying part is when people in power like that are able to take advantage of someone, they okay. often threaten to blacklist them and things like that. And I know in the case of Bill Prusel, he would often sexually assault these women or harass them and then he would threaten to blacklist them from the entire classical music world because he had that power and that's yeah. the terrifying thing is that women feel like they can't come forward in these situations and there's a whole issue happening at Eastman School of Music right now with one of the faculty members as well and women not feeling like they can come forward and that's yes. really 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 unfortunate that that's the world that we're living in right now. Yeah yeah and the fact that the Cleveland or I mean it was impossible not to know. And everybody was just waiting for it to make print in some credible way. It was just nauseating. And, um, and then academically, I also heard stories from women who did come forward and academia like followed all the rules on paper, but it ended up still yeah. disadvantaging the woman and letting the guy off scot-free, you know, because the rules would say that, you know, oh, the guy, he can no longer contact you except by email. Well, if he's the one that's like, 
conducting the local orchestra and running the local music program and whatever, and you can't contact him, suddenly you're shut out of the entire music network in your area and you can no longer build that kind of resume that you need to make your career. So you have to leave anyway, you know? And that's an example of the university supposedly doing everything right, but it wasn't right, you know? It's, there's, it's a really thorny problem. As I said, the knowledge of a few of these guys running around with like, oh, she left journalism now, nobody will ever know. I got away with it is, is stomach turning. But, yeah. you know, there's not, there wasn't more I could do with the post anyway about some of them. You know, there's, you can't chase down every person and, and you have to do other, the job involves a lot of things besides exposing Me Too people. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. But I think that the work that you did was so great because being a student in the Cleveland area during that time, I had heard all the rumors and all those things and people talking and even women not wanting to go to CIM because of those particular people were still employed there. And yeah. I think the Washington Post was one of the first sources to report about that. I think it was you like reporting about that first. You tackled the issue first and you brought that into the public eye. And I think that's just so important. And yeah, I can understand like the pressure you must feel to not be able to reveal every single individual person, but just in doing that has caused a domino effect, I feel like. I, I hope so. And I was happy about our piece that, you know, instead of writing a piece about one person, we wrote it about a bunch of people. Like we exposed, you know, three or four people in that piece, depending on how you count it. Because it's been a lot of work done. A lot of people now believe that we brought down Placido Domingo, which whom we did not even mention in our piece. Placido Domingo was entirely Jocelyn Gecker at the AP, who worked on it for two years and uh, mm -hmm. then brought out this series of stories. And there were the James Lemine stories and the Charles Dutrois stories. It's been a lot of really important work done on Me Too in classical music. But, you know, for whatever reason, our article became sort of the standard bringer. And I think it's partly because I was a music critic. I think to get these stories, it takes a combination of a music critic and an investigative journalist, because the music critic has a standing in the field that, you know, the person who, who started the ball rolling was absolutely right. People did talk to me because I was known enough in the field that I had some sort of power representation in the field that was a little bit of a counterweight to what they'd done. And when an investigative reporter comes in, it's usually completely from the outside. And then you have all kinds of issues of trust and issues of whether that person is going to understand the way things are in this field, you know, which is a very particular kind of field. And I think that's made it hard to get some of these stories. I mean, the reason that James Levine story has been floating around for so long is exactly a product of that, plus very powerful people who are sworn not to talk, you know. Yeah, and, and institutional investigations are often, like you said, they look official on paper and then all of a sudden something goes away. And then we find out that, hey, 20 women have complained about the same yeah. <laughs> person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, then you get the Cleveland Orchestra doing it right, doing that huge investigation through an outside law firm. They published the thing on their website. And Massimo Lorosa, whom we did not name in our piece, although we almost did, and Bill Prusil are both, you know, out. And then the AFFM comes back because it's representing Bill Prusil. And they depose the women all over again because he's also a member. And so they can't just let him be fired without. So the idea that the union is protecting anybody is ludicrous if they have an equal responsibility to protect the alleged perpetrator and the alleged victim. The alleged perpetrator is the one who has more power. And the Cleveland Orchestra, meanwhile, is sort of, you know, downplaying this report that it brought out. And there's a lot of frustration in, you know, the backward pace of change. I'm not sure exactly what happened and, you know, whether Prusil ended up getting some sort of payoff or whatever. I know he was going for it, but I know the union was suddenly appearing on his side after however many women it was who spoke to the independent law firm, not even us, you know. So yeah, I can get I can get kind of agitated about that. And, and again, it's not something that our training as classical music critics really prepares us for. And I had colleagues who came to me, you know, all through this, and I had these conversations myself long before I ever wrote it, where you hear, I mean, James Levine being an example, you know, okay, you hear stories about James Levine. Well, how do you, as a freelance classical music critic, go about covering that? Do you have the resources or the muscle or the know-how to get stories out of people and to do the kind of work that an investigative team does? And how is that going to impact your work as a classical music critic if you do, you know? 
if I had tried to get the Levine story as a freelancer for the Times, the first thing that would have happened is I would no longer have been able to review the Met. And that would have had quite an impact on my career, you know, and, and would I be able to get the story? And, and I wrestled with that a lot long before I came to the Washington Post. And I think my colleagues in every city had that question, you know, because these stories really do take months and years. I mean, the two years to get the Placido Domingo story sounds like a lot, but it's the same length of time that it took the reporters to bring down that coach about the female gymnasts, you know, that was also the two year story. These stories take a long, long, long time to ground the way you have to ground them to get them into print. And then they come into print and everybody goes, oh, it's just her word against his. Mm-hmm. This is the trial by public and it's not found. It's like the poor reporter who has taken two years and zillions of lawyers. It's like people have no idea what goes into that. But, uh, I mean, some people did. Yeah, and these institutions just have so much power over what is put out there and stuff. And they can blacklist people and hang it over their head and things like that. And you're talking about the Met Opera, because I know you've written a lot of pieces as a music critic about opera. And then you come out and you write about, you know, such and such person has done this to other people. And that's so hard, I feel like, for you as a journalist trying to figure out, okay, how much am I risking my career right now putting a piece out like this? And <laughs> will I be asked back again? Will I be able to go into the Met Opera and critique another you know, again? The advantage of having a steady job. I mean, I was a freelancer at the New York Times. Once I got to the Washington Post, I had a steady job. And the Post was a wonderful place to work. I mean, it was really great. It was, they were supportive. They had, were wonderful to me. You know, I, I hope I have never given the impression that I left because I was, you know, unhappy with the post. I'm just, I, I'm not a great person in big institutions and it was time for a change. But the advantage of that kind of job is that you have a lot more freedom to say stuff without playing a balancing act. Where at the times it was, I was a freelancer, so you weren't entirely sure your, that your paper was behind you, you know. It was, it was a slightly different, different relationship. So I certainly wasn't concerned when I was working on the Me Too piece about you know, my own career or anything like that. And also I was, I was at a different level in my career by the time it was, you know, 12 years later. I was at a post for 11 years. You know, that was a, a very secure place of power to be speaking from. You know, you have a pretty established platform then. But yeah, as a freelancer, when it's not as clear that you're going to get the story, then you just wonder, am I going to saw off the branch I'm sitting on in my attempt to get this? You know, it's not like being craven about, oh, is it going to destroy my career? But just, am I going to render myself ineffective doing what I do for a living? I hope that's not just self-justification. <laughs> There's a nuance of difference there. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like it's, it has a lot to do with relating to careers where people get tenure. Yeah, exactly. Feel like you can't say a lot when you don't have tenure, and then when you get right. tenure, all of a sudden you have these protections with you, and right. yeah, and the whole educational concept of tenure. I understand having job security and those sort of things, but it can often be really damaging if you're a person that doesn't have it, and things are happening to you, and you are afraid of the repercussions that may happen because you don't have that security. Right, and I mean that was never an issue with being critical. I never held back on being critical of an institution. God knows I ripped into plenty of productions of plenty of important institutions. You know, that's a critic's <laughs> prerogative and that's sort of part of the job. And, you know, I, I feel that I always reported fairly on institutions. It was specifically the Levine story where, you know, it was clear that it was such a deep story. And as I say, nobody has yet managed to get the Levine story. We've read a couple of Levine stories that were enough to get him out, but nobody has ever written an account of what Levine actually did when he was at the Met. That story will probably never be told, I predict, you know, or didn't do. Like, you know, maybe nothing happened. Maybe it's all rumors, but everybody acts now as if all the rumors about James Levine that we'd heard for all those years have been confirmed by what was printed in the press, and they haven't been. There were stories about what he did in Cleveland before he got to the Met, and they were damning and whatever, but that was, that's a different story. You mentioned being a music critic and you know, saying, say, it's basically, you know, your opinion after what you've observed and listened to and that sort of thing. So can you delve in a little bit about what your job was like being a critic and what sort of issues you may have come across with doing your job and being authentic and printing what you wanted to print? Well, it's funny. I learned very, very early on writing reviews that 
you know, you're never going to please anybody, everybody you're, that you're, and that people are not going to see what you wrote, that you have, once the thing is in print, you have very little control over how people read it. And you will often, particularly with strong reviews, get two different readers' letters, one condemning you and one praising you, and neither one of them having actually kind of understood what you thought the review was about. It's, you know, the fate of anybody who puts anything out into the public sphere, whether you're singing or writing or dancing, you know, all you can do is do what you do, and people are going to take that however they want it. I was very loath to become a critic in particular because I wanted to be on the side of the artists, and my whole family are artists. Growing up, critics were the bad guys, and so it was a very funny position for me to have come into. And I really learned that, you know, A, unless you just write that everybody was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you're not going to be on the side of the artists. B, if you try to praise everything, you're not going to even be an interesting critic. Like nobody is going to read you if they know that you only praise, you know? And that's not a useful thing anyway, because what you're really doing as a critic is trying to reach the lay public who doesn't know about it. And you're trying to say, this is worth your while. This isn't worth your while. This is what's good. You're trying to sort of help develop standards and your view of standards. But the other thing is you have to let go of the idea that you're telling people what to think. I came to feel very strongly that the real point of my job was to get people thinking in some way. You know, if what you manage to do as a critic is to get somebody to argue vehemently with you, that's a pretty good service because it's getting them to articulate their views. And the point is to have people thinking and focusing on art and making art a topic of discussion. Doug McLennan, who runs artsjournal.com, is a really early sort of visionary about arts journalism. And he described the critic's role in a way that I've always, that I took to heart and have always kept to heart, that it's like a watering hole, that you want everybody to come drink at your watering hole, not because you've got the elixir that's going to show them the truth, but because you're the place they want to hang out and exchange their views, mm -hmm. that your reviews are where people discuss their own feelings. That seems to me like a really useful function at a time when we want to assert that art is important, that it deserves a place in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, it's, it's about creating conversations. Also, having lived in Germany for 11 years and going up to an audience member, an old lady, and saying, what did you think of the concert? And she's like, well, I thought the juxtaposition of the Mozart and the Bear was very good, but I don't know why they're doing Tchaikovsky now, and so I'm leaving. And I would go to audience members of the New York Philharmonic and say, what did you think? And they'd be like, oh, it was beautiful. The horns were very loud. And I realized those are subjective answers, but the level of engagement always seemed to me to be lagging behind in America than in in Europe, people were much more sort of engaged sports fan type audience members. And in America, it's all sort of, you're so daunted by the beautiful and the greatness of the great, of the itness of it all that you, um, that you tend to turn off your critical faculties. And I would like people to be, I think all of us would like people to be engaged with their critical faculties. We want people who are, you know, there as partners, hearing the music and looking at the art and whatever it is. And that's really what a critic does, is sort of help lead what one hopes are many conversations about, about works of art. And that can be done through a review or through a feature or through shaking up people and reminding them that, you know, there are not enough women composers and there are not enough black composers. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But getting people talking, and not in a cheap clickbaity way, but, you know, talking in a, in a serious way about these issues is the best thing you can do, I think. Yeah, and you brought up an interesting point about the comment coming from an audience member in Europe and a comment coming from an audience member in America. And I think that's so true because I feel like in the U.S. we view the symphony orchestra as this elitist being that only a small percentage of the population participates in. And in yeah. Europe, I feel like it's a lot more a part of their normalcy and their culture and that sort of thing. And yeah, that sports fan mentality, that was, that's so true. And I think the only time that you would get someone who would be critical of an orchestra is if you were talking to someone who was like a music student or something like that and could hear what was going on and be like, yeah, you know what, that actually didn't sound very great or something like that. Because I feel like, yeah, as the average American going to an orchestra concert it's kind of this elitist sort of understanding that they don't dare comment on anything that they may have heard that they may not necessarily agree with and i i have tried to you know spread the word among anybody who will listen to me that opera 
19th century Italian opera is essentially a populist art. It's the film of its day. You know, Puccini was not high art to his listeners. Puccini was like, you know, Steven Spielberg. And which is not, not meant as a put down. He was an incredibly popular, successful artist who really knew how to reach a large audience in his time and still does. And I remember an artist friend of mine, a visual artist, saying that I was audacious. She was almost titillated at my daring in saying that this was popular art because we have opera on such a freaking pedestal. And it's like, no, look what operas do. Like, you're going to enjoy it more if you think of it like baseball and less like, you know, angels on a, on a column playing harps. I mean, it's just, that's not what it's about. It's about sex and drama and teenage angst, you know, it's like half of opera. And yeah, we're much more removed from it as a culture. And there's a lot of ways that's happened. There's a musicologist named Doug Shadle who wrote a wonderful book called Orchestrating the Nation about the ways in the 19th century that the gatekeepers kind of stamped out the yeah. growth of an indigenous American classical music and kept lecturing everybody that only what came from Europe was any good. And, mm -hmm. you know, which is still our attitude. I mean, reading this, reading this book and realizing this has been baked into American classical music from the beginning was eye-opening and very frustrating, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it has not, we have not been able to, to achieve the level of security with it that we should have, which is ironic because a lot of our great orchestras are older than a lot of the great European orchestras. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, we think of it as being such an import and, and it's a shame. And that's why our, our orchestras and institutions are so struggling here. But I mean, my own sort of, radical view is that we just have too many of these big institutions that are sucking the oxygen out of the room and not allowing smaller institutions to grow up, you know, which would be more alive, you know. I mean, I, I, I love orchestra music as much as the next person, probably more than the next person. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> given what we're saying. But I just think we need a greater, a greater range of experiences. The idea that people think listening to classical music has to be done in a concert hall in velvet seats for two hours at 7.30 at night already is unfortunate. Like there's so many different ways we could be doing it. And I feel like the big institutions are trying to reinforce that idea rather than encourage the natural variety and multiplicity of this magnificent art form and all these different ways you could be doing it, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree with all of that. And if we want to make our audiences more diverse and more open and include all different ages and ethnicities and genders and sexualities and all these things, then we can't keep this elitist gatekeeping sort of culture, like you said, that's so, so important. And yeah, we need to somehow integrate classical music more into our day-to-day -day life. And that comes from not putting classical music in this one bubble. Exactly. And you know, to really diversify the audience, it's going to change what we do. And that's what really scares people. I mean, the attitude of orchestras, I think, you know, and big opera companies could be summed up as, you know, what we do is so great, we have to get more people to appreciate what we do, rather than, you know, think if we really want to diversify the audience, we really have to diversify what's on stage in fundamental ways, and it's not going to be just what we want. And the fact that people see this as threatening is really revealing, given that, you know, as I said, I love orchestral concerts. You can still give a traditional orchestral concert and do other things. It's not a throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of situation. And the fact that people see it as that, and that when you talk about changing the experience, they get up in arms about it is revealing. And again, I think the COVID situation is going to take care of a lot of this because the yeah. country, our country doesn't have the state subsidies to come back and play to audiences of 100 people for the next season. Mm -hmm. um, there's just going to be different ways of doing it, you know, and, and I already see the smaller organizations being empowered and stimulated by the possibilities. And of course, the big organizations are just kind of in free fall. That's what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. Before we can start going back in any form. Yeah. And I think it was, I saw this tweet today and I thought it was so funny because it's just weird coincidence that all of this happened in the year 2020 when all of these orchestras were programming entirely Beethoven because of his <laughs> 150th birthday. And I was like, this is a sign from the universe. <laughs> we need to stop just 
catering to a certain handful of composers over and over and over again and then expect our audiences to change and the tweet mentioned that and then also went so what are we going to do in 2027 when it's the 200th anniversary of his death are we just going to program all Beethoven again and I just thought it was so funny because that's what ends up happening you know orchestras and people in orchestras are complaining oh we're dying off we're not being part of our popular culture anymore We're, we're not filling the seats yada 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 yet you're playing the same handful of people over and over and over again it's like beating your head up against a wall you're not going to get anything done and and there are so many ways that you can honor Beethoven without just programming a symphony cycle. Yeah. I mean, I look back to 2006, which was the big Mozart year. And the city of Vienna, of course, did an entire Mozart year. But a highlight of their Mozart year was a festival in which they threw a lot of money at Peter Sellers to do a Mozart festival. And I think he barely played any Mozart at all. He commissioned John Adams to write an opera, A Flowering Tree. He commissioned a whole bunch of filmmakers from countries that didn't have any support for filmmaking. I think that was like one of the most valuable contributions. But the point was he took the spirit of Mozart, of innovation, quirkiness, um, Masonic ideals, and tried to find ways to realize that in the real world. it was a really fun festival. And, you know, Peter Sellers can do off the wall things, but this festival I really, really enjoyed. And the fact that that was the instinct of the city of Vienna had to honor Mozart was a great instinct. You know, this is Mozart pure, and yet they weren't all putting on powdered 18th century wigs and yeah. <laughs> playing their concertos. And just the same pieces over and over and over again. That's so true. The idea of Mozart instead of just Mozart. <laughs> right, so what does it mean when John Adams writes a Mozart opera? Well, it was pretty cool, you know, and, and Peter Sellers mm-hmm. directs it. And all, all different things. I wrote a big piece about it for the New York Times at the time. I wrote a couple of pieces, I think, because they sent me to Vienna. Of course, I wrote a bunch of pieces. So the idea of honoring Beethoven by reprogramming him endlessly seemed really unfortunate to begin with. You know? yeah. And I know that the Beethoven house in Bonn, again, Europe is much more hip about this because it is a more living tradition. And so they do try to think of more contemporary ways to honor the past. And we're locked into our red velvet seats, you know? Mm-hmm. Our barns are, are huge, huge halls, which are bigger than European halls, and that helps kill the art form too, because part of the joy of the art form is feeling the vibrations, the literal vibrations in your body, you know, and being close to people making those sounds. And if you're in a 4,000 seat hall and the opera singer is, you know, looks like an ant, it's not, you're not really getting the experience that's going to turn you on to opera in any meaningful way. Yeah, and people do it just to seem cultured and they're not actually making a real connection with what's happening on the stage. Yeah, yeah. I've had it happen over and over again that I've sent photographers to rehearsals to photograph the various stories, and especially when it's opera, the photographer always comes back from the rehearsal with his mind blown because he's been in the room with these voices and he's just like, oh my God, this is incredible. It's like, yep. And you can go to an opera house and not come away with quite that level of excitement because it's just you don't feel what's happening you know you just don't realize you think they must be mic'd you know yeah that's so true i would like to talk a little bit more about your current projects because i know you've collaborated on two books and yes. i mentioned that you're writing your own book so can you talk a little bit about your contributions as being an author well i mean i always wanted to be a novelist and i am now getting to do that finally i didn't expect to take a you know 20 year detour into journalism but my project relates directly to ways of honoring beethoven because i'm writing a book about the woman who built pianos for beethoven one of beethoven's close friends knew him for most of her life and she was this successful piano builder in classical era vienna and she's not widely known and it's a literal example of putting a woman back in the heart of classical history. Her father built pianos for Mozart. Her son took over the business from her and became Brahms's favorite piano builder. It's the Streicher family dynasty. Her father was Johann Andreas Stein and then she married Streicher. And she married the man she wanted and had children who loved her and grew up to be successful children. And she had the successful company and she truly had it all. And You know, so many stories of women in the 18th and 19th century are about thwarted ambitions and not quite succeeding. And to have a woman who really did have it all, not that she rose as high as a man in her position would have risen, but she did have it all. She was a successful and high achieving woman who had a career and a happy life. 
And that seems to me remarkable. It's hard to do all that now in 2020 to yeah. be able to find that balance. And then just going through the history and finding, you know, realizing how much of that history is unquestioningly dominated by men. Um, when you go through the records, when you're working on a project like this, you look for crumbs of whoever you're working on. And so, of course, the crumbs of Beethoven have been so abundantly repackaged and that we forget that, that the society looked anything different almost. I mean, there's been a lot of historical novels, obviously, and a lot of research done into the society, but in the classical music world, you know, we forget that there were so many talented women who were a major part of the society that fostered the music that we now play over and over and over. So working on this project has given me a different view of all of the, all of the voices that history has kind of stamped out. I mean, it is fascinating that you look at a biographical dictionary of music from 1796, and there are lots of women in there. And then you look at the same one from 1896, you know, over the generations, and basically all the same men are in there and all the women are gone. <laughs> wow, yeah. That's how, that's how we filter these things out. I began the project thinking that, oh my God, this woman is a unicorn. How did she manage this? And sort of the most empowering and exciting thing about it I have now found is that she wasn't a unicorn, that there were lots of women, 50% of the population, in fact, and she had lots of strong, amazing women role models, contacts, recreating that world is, is very heady and trying to figure out how to display that. I'm doing it as a historical novel, not as an academic book or as a nonfiction book, because I think it's the best way to get that story across. And I also want to reach a wider audience with it. And also I want to be a novelist and that's what I like to do. So yeah, so it makes sense on many levels. <laughs> so, but it is using all of my journalistic background, my German language fortunate knowledge. You know, it's tying in a lot of things, and it is going to be almost entirely based on fact. I'm not taking great liberties with the facts, it's just more in the way I present them. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so great that you're doing that. It's, it's a lot of fun, it really is. And of course, I'm doing a lot of, you know, dabbling at the sides. Projects are coming in over the transom, so I have, I have several irons in the fire, but, uh, but the book is what I want to give my main energy to right now. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're doing that because I feel like that is a great way to elicit some change and to bring awareness of the idea that a lot of women have been forgotten in classical music that have had a pretty significant impact on our history. Yep. And in the era before recording and in the era when publishing was male dominated, the ways people were discouraged from publishing their own work and the ways that it's very easy to forget that some of the greatest virtuosos were women because there was no way to document that. And mm -hmm. then they got married and stopped playing or whatever it was they did. A, a good thing to be reminded of. But we'll see. And there's a lot of there's a lot of good books out there already. It's it's not like I'm breaking some kind of new ground. You know, I yeah. feel like I'm joining this whole sisterhood of, of writers and academics and people I'm really happy to be discovering. That's great. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today and sharing your experiences and talking about your career. I think what you've done in your career is just so fascinating and what you continue to do. And it's it's very inspiring. Well, thank you so much for having me, and, and I appreciate it. And I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I think that the more awareness of the remarkable woman we have among us right now, the better for the field as well, even more so. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>